0: Let's see if this brings back any memories. Are you familiar with the song? Love is a burning thing and it makes a fiery ring bound by wild desire. I fell into a ring of fire. I fell in to a burning ring of fire. Do you realize that that song came out almost 55 years ago? Johnny Cash, he released it in the mid to late 60s. And when it came out, it was popular. But there were some people who said, that's a little edgy. We don't really want to be talking about that, that type of love, this kind of passion that just consumes the one who is loved. That's a little bit scandalous. But, you know, it doesn't really matter if you're a country music fan or not. Everybody kind of jumped onto this song and began singing it. We love singing about it. But do we really want a love like that? We're not really comfortable with a love like that. Why? Because healthy people have boundaries. I mean, healthy people have limits. There can be too many flowers. There are such thing as too many phone calls, too many messages, too many just unexpected times where somebody just kind of shows up. I mean, you never want to be in the position where you're like jumping out of windows to avoid the object of this person's love. I mean, there are limits. There are boundaries, healthy people people have those and so we want this agreement where hey I'm only going to ask so much of you and in turn you only ask so much of me we have boundaries here we have limits you know that memo on boundaries and limits Yeah, I don't think God got that memo. As we'll see this morning, continuing through the book of Joel, we see that God is a limitless God, a boundless God. He doesn't go with boundaries and limits. He wants to consume the one he loves. He is this consuming fire. So, Last week, we kind of began with the first part of Joel, and in that we we see this judgment that's coming in the form of a locust plague, which foreshadowed an even greater day, the ultimate day of judgment. Now... Joel then calls on the people to repent and the repentance that Joel talks about, it's this wholehearted tearing of your heart, completely broken over the sin that you've committed. And if you will just repent like that, if you will rend your hearts and not your garments so much so that people are like begging out to God, oh God, would you please see our brokenheartedness, so that none of the other nations can look at us and say, where is your God? Will you return? Will you relent? Will you have pity on us and if the people would respond with this kind of broken-hearted repentance what would god do well that's where we pick it up in joel chapter 2 verse 18 and we'll see this limitless god who knows no boundaries let's go ahead let's begin joel chapter 2 verses 18 through 32 It reads, Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending you grain, wine and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. And that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. Now, you remember back in chapter 1, Joel launches right in on this note of judgment. There is no, like, here's your sin and here's why God is judging. None of that. He just launches right in to judgment. And now in chapter two, you get this picture that as soon as the people repent, I mean, this brokenheartedness, not just like acts of repentance, but true brokenhearted repentance. As soon as that takes place, well, then Joel launches right in to this note of hope. It says that God would be jealous for us. Now that kind of stops us in our tracks because jealous, I mean, that's not really a kind of word that we would want to associate God with. You know, we want God to be a little more dignified than jealous, a little more put together than that. I mean, jealousy, that's that's tacky. It embarrasses us that God would be jealous for us. I mean, that's why we have some celebrities out there, Oprah, Brad Pitt. There, There are some who've just said, this doesn't make any sense. I mean, this omnipresent God, this omniscient God, this everything God, that he would be jealous for me, for us. I mean, it almost seems to to devalue God, they say, and we struggle with it too, don't we? To be the object of that kind of passion from the infallible creator of heaven and earth, it just seems to boggle my mind. We don't want to be the target of that type of love, this consuming fire that leaves nothing behind so that he would have all of us. (laughs) See, that's the thing about God, isn't it? This God who gives everything... He also demands everything. He is jealous for you because he created you for himself. He didn't want to share you with anybody. He wants you to have as your sole focus, sole desire, he himself. He demands your full attention. You know, we, we want some type of negotiated limits in there, don't we? We want some kind of boundaries. We don't understand a God like this. A God who would leave the comforts of heaven to come to a bloody cross on earth. That type of love, all for love, that's just too much for us. But you see, God is jealous for you because he created you and he created you for himself. And so God says, here's how I'll love you. Here's how I'll demonstrate my love to you. Once you respond with full-hearted, broken repentance, here's how I'll I'll respond. I will bring back blessing upon blessing. I'll restore to you that the years that the locust has eaten. And we hear that and we say, well, wait a second. Wait a second, You, you can't go and get those years back. I mean, those years are gone. And some of you, you know the pain of wasted years. You know the pain of just living life for your own pleasure, just doing whatever you think seems best, and the yield of that turns out to be nothing but pain and regret. Some of you, you know the pain. You know what it's like to have wasted a marriage or to have wasted the influence you had as a parent. You know the pain of wasted years. And you're saying, I can't get those years back. I can't get a redo. I can't undo what I've done. And God says, you know, when you're so brokenhearted, when you come to me, not just rendering your garments, but your heart's. When you're so devastated to the point that I have all of you, God says, I will bring back blessing upon blessing to you. To those who repent, I will bring back blessing upon blessing. And what begins to happen Well, you begin to kind of forget about some of those wasted years in the past. He restores to you the years that the locusts have eaten. He makes all things new. It's not that he goes back and changes the past. No, that's done. Instead, what he does is he reorients you to a grand, eternal, glorious future. See, true repentance, it yields blessing upon blessing upon blessing. Oh, it'll be so good. And in verse 27, this is when I have all of you, God's saying, when I have all of you, you will know that I'm the Lord your God. There is no other. Never again will you be ashamed of me. Never again will you be embarrassed by my love, embarrassed by my jealousy for you so that I can have all of you. You are my people. But you see, this whole time as he's talking, he's talking about Judah, I mean, this is all the southern kingdom Judah, but then in verse 28, it takes this incredible shift because he says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, on all people. I will consume you, Judah, but I will consume all of you. I'll consume every last one of you. I will indwell you. I want all, see, he wants all people. Everyone who he's ever created, he wants all of us for himself, not just Israel. He wants all of his creation. And so right here in the New Testament, or in the Old Testament, you have this prophecy about this new covenant that Jesus is going to inaugurate. Joel doesn't specifically say new covenant. He just Uh, alludes to it by saying that there will be a day when God pours out his spirit on all people. Now, the prophet Jeremiah, he will specifically talk about this new covenant that the Messiah will inaugurate. The prophet Isaiah, he'll allude to it just like Joel. And this new covenant, you know, we go back, we can look at some of the older covenants in scripture. We see the Noahic covenant and the symbol of that Noahic covenant. It was the rainbow, you remember. There was the Abrahamic covenant, and the symbol of that covenant was circumcision. There was the Mosaic covenant, and the, the symbol of the Mosaic covenant was the Sabbath. I mean, that's why the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they were so focused on trying to prove that Jesus is violating Sabbath laws, and so they're trying to nail him on the Sabbath because they know, oh, if we prove him, if we get him there, then we've got him, He's done. But Jesus, he's coming in to inaugurate this new covenant where we rest in God, not just on one day, but on every single day. And so I think that's why Jesus, he does so many of his miracles on the Sabbath to kind of point it out. Hey, I'm I'm for you each and every day. You need to rest in me each and every day. Well, then there is this sign of the new covenant that Jesus does inaugurate. And that sign, well, it's the Holy Spirit. And Peter will say in the book of Acts that, hey, what Joel prophesied is now being partially fulfilled here on this day when the Spirit is being poured out among his people. And so you have this partial fulfillment of Joel 2 in the book of Acts. So now today we're new covenant people. We have been given the Holy Spirit who indwells us. But sometimes you'll find churches, you'll find people who interpret the Bible in such a way that they almost want to take you back to the Mosaic Covenant. And they'll talk about the Sabbath and keeping the Sabbath. And they'll talk about the altar. And they'll, they'll make references to a building and these different things. But we aren't under that anymore. We're, we're now under the new covenant. It's kind of like if, if you're married, you know how it is, like before you're married, you, set, you have certain rules in place for your conduct and it's, it's limited, right? There ought to be certain boundaries, certain limits. But then once you become married, well, now you're under a new covenant. You have different rules, different, different conduct that is now acceptable. But if your spouse were to say to you, you know what, those rules and those, those boundaries that we had in place before we were married, let's just live according to that. Well, you're saying, no way, I'm under a new covenant now. I don't have to live under that old covenant anymore. I've got this new covenant that I can live under that. Something has happened. I'm not prepared to live under that old way any longer. Yeah, you know what? As Christians, so many times we'd rather have some boxes to check. We'd rather have some boundaries, we'd rather have some limits. We'd rather have say something, okay, some of this is just off off limits that we need boundaries here. We want healthy people have boundaries. And God he is this limitless God, this God who knows no bounds. And he says, there will not be any limits that I have with my people. There will be no boundary set up between me and my people. I want to consume all of you. See, he demands everything of his people because he's given everything for his people. People sometimes aren't comfortable with this kind of God. And so there is a judgment. And then we come to chapter 3 to read about this. I want to read all 21 verses to you from Joel chapter 3. It reads, For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations, consecrate for war, stir up the mighty men, let all the men of of war draw near, let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, a tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel." So you shall know that I and the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain in Jerusalem shall be holy and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day, the mountain shall drip with sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk and the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water from the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom, a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land, but Judah shall be inhabited forever and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. God's letting everybody know that he's picking a fight. He's telling everybody, hey, go get your swords. And so Joel is turning the, the prophecies of Isaiah and Micah on its head. And those prophecies were a proph- a prophecies, prophecies of peace, where they're saying, hey, you're going to take your, your swords, you're going to take your spears, and you're going to beat them into plowshares, you're going to beat them in, in, into rakes, and there will be a day when swords and spears won't be needed anymore, where well, there will simply be peace. But Joel is saying that that day is not this day. And everyone's going to beat their plowshares into swords. I mean, you're going to take your rakes and you're going to turn them into bazookas. You'll, You'll take your shovels and you'll turn them into Uzis. I mean, all the nations will be gathered in the valley of Jehoshaphat. By the way, Jehoshaphat, it means Yahweh judges, the Lord. He's not sending out a polite invitation here. He's not calling on the nations to send in an RSVP or anything like that. He is summoning his people. He is summoning all the people. He is calling them all to battle. And then he changes the metaphor in verse 13. Did you catch that? He's not talking about a battle anymore no he changed it. now he's talking about a sickle in the harvest he's talking about treading through a wine press and, and this vat see he had been describing this day of the lord as this great battle royale everyone marching with their weapon of choice and the lord is going to take on all the nations that have come up against him but then joel changes the metaphor because in actuality this great and awesome and terrible day of the lord it's not all the armies just kind of battling it out to the finish. No, that would make God seem far too weak. It's much more like a farmer who's just kind of swinging his sickle, lopping off the heads of grain, or, or a farmer stepping into a, wat, a vat of wine and just stomping on the grapes to get their juice. Joel says, hey, you've gathered for battle. But don't think this is going to be some tug of war. The final day of the Lord is going to be so easy for the Lord as if he's a farmer just kind of swinging his sickle in a field. God's power and might are far superior to that of his enemies. And so we read about the multitudes upon the multitudes who have been gathered here in the valley of decision. Now, when you hear that valley of decision, don't picture some great evangelistic revival type where God gives the people one last chance to make a decision for the Lord. That's not it at all. This valley of decision, it is the Lord's decision. It is his verdict. This is the day when the nations will receive God's verdict on their lives for all their sin. And it will be great and it will be awesome and it will be terrible. Who can endure it? It's a day pictured with earthquakes and darkness because the whole earth is trembling at her maker. You know, the book of Revelation also talks about this day. In in that book, it talks about people who will be trying to hide under the rocks because of the wrath of the lamb, but it will be futile because the Lord Jesus Christ will perfectly execute his judgment. Now, the question for us is, do we have a God who looks like this? I mean, do you really believe in this kind of God who lops off his enemies like a farmer wielding a a sickle? Or is your God so tolerant of evil, so indifferent to rebellion, absolutely unconcerned with disobedience? Because if that's your God, understand that's not the God of the Bible. You know, I'm sorry, but there's this attitude that is prevalent today among far too many churches where there's no mention of God's divine wrath. And when you eliminate that aspect of God's counsel... See, either you're either operating in ignorance, well, I just never read that before, or you're purposefully trying to willfully shield people from this aspect of God because you think that your view of God is just a little more palatable, a little more, uh, I don't know, friendly, and so people respond to that type of God better. And in so doing, you're not introducing people to the real God whatsoever, because if you read through the whole Bible, this image of God and this image of Jesus, of of one who makes all things right, one who comes with divine wrath and judgment is repeated time after time after time through the scriptures. Now, I don't necessarily enjoy talking about it. I mean, I'll just get some kind of like kicks out of being scary and loud and pointing to this great, terrible day of the Lord, this ultimate day of judgment. But I pointed out and we reference it here from the prophet Joel, because if this is going to happen, I mean, how loving is it to anyone to pretend that it won't? You know, Paul, when he left the Ephesian elders, he said that I am innocent of your blood because I have proclaimed to you the entire counsel of God's word. Now, let me just tell you, you do not want to be part of a church that talks about God's wrath every single Sunday. Why? Because there's a lot of God in God's word that doesn't deal with his wrath. It talks about other aspects of who he is. But by the same token, you don't want to be a part of a church that never talks about God's wrath or ignores that part of who God is, because this fills out our image. It gives us a better understanding of just who our God is. See, if you lose the doctrine of God's wrath, you will eventually lose the doctrine of sin. Sin will simply be a mistake, and after all, we're just human. We all make mistakes. And once you lose the doctrine of sin, you will ultimately lose the doctrine of the cross, of atonement, because that's where God's wrath was perfectly poured out on his son Jesus so that our sin could be fully and finally paid for so that we could have a relationship with the God of the universe that is perfect, that is secure forever, and that will not stain his heaven in the least. But see, if you ignore this aspect of God's divine wrath and the cross simply becomes an uncomfortable display of God's weakness, that he would do this to his son, you understand if you ignore God's wrath, you will ultimately lose the gospel. You'll simply call people to turn over a new leaf or to get a fresh start on life or to discover your best self. Instead of this type, Of repentance where you would rip your heart into shreds in order to be fully and wholly consumed by the love of God see you need to understand as we make our way through the minor prophets he's calling on the people together nations to have this view of God where it's impossible to separate God's judgment from his love See, far too often today, we want to separate these two. Well, there's the aspect of God where he judges, and there's this aspect of God where he he loves. And so we have these like two almost opposing characteristics of God. But the very same verse in Joel, when he talks about earthquakes and darkness, and just how ominous a scene this is going to be, and where the people are hiding and all of this. And that same verse, he says, but I will be a stronghold for my people. I will be a place of refuge. See, God actively and lovingly and righteously judges his enemies so that all the nations of the earth will one day become one kingdom for our Lord and his Christ. He is uniting all things in himself so that he can rightly be seen as all in all. When we're consumed by the Spirit in such a way, there will be no more sin. See, it will be glorious. There will be no more sin. You'll be able to beat your your swords and your spears back into the plowshares. Why? Because there will be perfect Peace and God will bring blessing after blessing. We read about that here in Joel. Did you catch it? He will cause the mountains to drip with wine. He will cause the hills to flow with milk. There will be just water pouring in the streams. Oh, what a beautiful image. I mean, that valley that he's talking about where water is just gonna be rushing. It's a valley that most of the time is simply dry. I mean bone dry, but he's saying it's gonna be rushing with water. There's gonna be life, it's gonna be glorious, it's gonna be great. See, it's impossible to separate God's judgment from his love because they go together so that he can have all of us. This God without limits, this God without boundaries, he will stop at nothing for you because he's jealous for you so that you will be completely and fully his. He will stop at nothing to get a people who are totally focused on him, where he alone is the object of their affection, so that God one day will rightly be seen throughout all the universe as all in all. Because of humanity's sin, well, it's messy getting to that point. But because he loves us, he judges righteously so that that place, that glorious place can be achieved. And where he returns all those years that the locusts have eaten away so that God's people can gather together uninhibited with goodness and hope. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who wants all of us. God, even when that makes us a little uncomfortable and we're not so sure what to do with a boundless God, a limitless God, God, would you cause us just to rip at our hearts so that we can know you more and more fully, be fully consumed by your love, never embarrassed, never ashamed of you in the slightest. God, give us that full-hearted devotion and help us to share that type of love and that type of passion that you have for others with them. We need your help to do that. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.